The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. I don't know about you, but for me, I feel like I keep getting these news alerts saying basically we're making progress in this fight against the coronavirus, that cases are slowing, kids will be vaccinated soon, we're going to have widely available at-home test kits, we have boosters. But are we making progress? Or is this just a bunch of news alerts? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao, in for Martine Powers. It's Thursday, October 28th. Today, we try to figure out answers to some of these questions. And we thought, who else to turn to but Dr. Lena Wen. She is a practicing emergency physician and contributing columnist at The Post. There's a lot happening in COVID-19 news right now as we're learning how to live with this pandemic. And that includes boosters, vaccines for children, and how we can get access to widespread rapid testing. We started by asking Dr. Wen, what's the latest on vaccines for kids? Well, we had great news this week that I hope will be official by next week, which is that the FDA advisors voted strongly in favor of recommending vaccines for children 5 to 11 years old. And that's based on the data from Pfizer showing that the vaccines in this group are safe, that they induce a very strong antibody response, and also that the vaccines appear to be nearly 91% effective in protecting against symptomatic disease in this age. The next steps are the FDA has to officially endorse these recommendations. The CDC advisors are then going to be meeting next Tuesday. And then the CDC director has to sign off on all of the recommendations. But based on where it looks like things are going, I would project that by as early as next Wednesday, that we're going to be able to see the first shots going into the arms of 5 to 11-year-olds. And that's going to give parents such great relief. I mean, there are parents who've been sending their kids to school in areas that have not been requiring masks. Um, There are parents of immunocompromised children or kids with asthma, obesity, chronic medical conditions who are worried every day about their children's health. There are parents who have not been living much of their own lives because they're so concerned about potentially infecting their unvaccinated children. And so I think this will give a huge amount of relief to parents and kids to be able to resume their own pre-pandemic lives, too. Dr. Wen, I'm wondering, like, what can we expect this to actually look like in terms of distribution and when kids will actually be able to get the shot and what that might look like? Yeah, so the Biden administration has really been, I think, very good about doing the operational work. They know that, of course, we have to wait for the FDA and CDC to officially give the sign-off. But at the same time, it takes time to distribute the vaccines. It takes time to organize for pediatricians' offices and pharmacies to even know, are they going to get the vaccine? How much vaccine are they going to get? For individual offices to have the refrigeration, to have the supplies, to have needles in stock for younger kids and so forth. And so all that work has already started. Pediatricians 
immigration offices, many of them have already started receiving the vaccines. Pharmacies are already beginning to figure out what age of children they're going to be able to vaccinate. These, this vaccine also for this younger age group is 10 micrograms, which is a third of the dose of the um, of what's given to adults and also for other children, for adolescents 12 and older, which is 30 micrograms. And so it's a different formulation, different vial. The needles for younger kids are different. And so all that work has already started. And so if you are a parent and you're wondering where you could go, the best place to begin is to call your pediatrician because a lot of pediatricians will already have the vaccine in stock or will soon have it in stock. They might already have a waiting list or some type of procedure. They might even be setting up their own vaccine clinics. I would start there. And then if you, um, the other places to look are your local pharmacies, but really important to call in advance because depending on the age of your child, the pharmacy may not have um, the personnel to be able to administer the shots to really young kids. Um, and I would also look at other health centers if you don't have a pediatrician, but you go to a family doctor's office or to a federally qualified health center, call there and see what their procedures are. Mm. And what does this mean ultimately in the fight against the coronavirus? How important is it for young children to be vaccinated, you know, for us to get back to, I guess, pre-pandemic life? Here's the way that I think about this as a parent of of two little kids. Actually, my kids are unfortunately too little to be vaccinated at this point. They're one in four, and my oh. four-year-old just turned four. And so well, well, we're, we're going to have to be waiting for a bit. But, you know, it certainly will make a difference to the trajectory of the pandemic if you have 28 million people who are now newly eligible. Millions are going to get vaccinated, and that will increase the overall immunity in our population. And that could make a difference when it comes to preparing us for the winter ahead and increasing our overall immunity level. That, though, is not the main reason to get our kids vaccinated. Ultimately, the reason to get children vaccinated, and I say this as a parent as well as a physician, is specifically to protect our children. My latest Washington Post piece was specifically on this topic, on this topic of how there is this false and really pervasive narrative that somehow younger children are not affected by COVID, that somehow younger children are exempt from the effects of, of this pandemic, when actually that's really not true. There have been about 1.9 million kids in this 5 to 11 age group who have had COVID. Um, there, about more than 8,000 of them have been hospitalized. Thousands have had this multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children that affects multiple organs. Many of them are still living with long-term effects from COVID-19. And very tragically, at least 140 children in this age group of 5 to 11 have died. COVID is now one of the top leading causes of death in this age group. Wow. And so as a parent, I know we all want to do everything we can to protect our children. And the fallacy has been to compare the impact of COVID on children to the impact of COVID on adults. Yes, it's true that adults tend to get much sicker than kids. But the truth is that children can and, and do get very sick from coronavirus. And if we have the ability to turn something that could be a fatal disease in otherwise healthy children into basically a mild cold or no symptoms, why wouldn't we do that? For me, that's the reason why I am so eager to get my kids vaccinated as soon as possible to protect them. And also so that my husband and I can go back to traveling, not worrying about going into workplaces and other sites where we could potentially feel like we, you know, we are 
protected ourselves because we're vaccinated, but we don't want to bring back COVID back to our children. Mm. So I think the main difference here is one, protecting our children, but two, allowing families and and parents to resume their pre-pandemic normal lives too. I want to talk about booster shots. It seems like there's been a lot of news on that lately. What's the latest and who needs one? So at this point, my projection is that everyone is going to need booster shots at some point. What the CDC and FDA have said is that there is a group of people who really right now should be getting an additional dose. And then there are other people who are eligible who may get an additional dose. And so the people who should get an additional dose are if you got the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and it's been at least six months since your first two shots, and you are either over 65 or you're over 50 with a chronic underlying medical condition, you should get a booster shot. If you got Pfizer and Moderna and you are an adult, 18 and older, and you have a chronic medical condition or you have um, high risk exposure through your occupation, for example, or through your living situation, you may get a booster. You may choose to get a booster shot at this time. By the way, this recommendation is very different if you got the Johnson Johnson vaccine. The recommendation that came out last week by the CDC and the FDA are that if you got the J&J vaccine, and I did, I got the one dose Johnson Johnson vaccine, if you are at least two two months out from getting the one-dose J&J vaccine. Regardless of your risk factor, regardless of your age, you should be getting a second dose at this time. You could get the J&J second dose, you could get an mRNA, either Pfizer or Moderna, but basically they're essentially acknowledging that the J&J vaccine should have been a two-dose vaccine from the start. Mm. So on that note, you, you can mix and match between vaccines. You can. And I'm really glad that the CDC came out with this, what we call a permissive recommendation, which is to say they're not they're not saying that there's a preference. Rather, they are leaving this to the individual discretion of the patient in consultation with their physician and pharmacist and other healthcare providers provider. One reason this is so important is for convenience. Imagine that if you are a nursing home resident and you got one of the three vaccines and now the nursing home is arranging for a vaccinator to come in and give everybody booster doses. It would be really hard for the vaccinator to be matching all three doses and all the individuals in a nursing home. And so having the flexibility for convenience reasons is really important. The other reason is individuals may have a personal preference. So if you got the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, I really don't think there's a reason to switch to one of these or to switch to Johnson Johnson. Very different in the case of the Johnson Johnson vaccine. For women between the ages of 18 and 49, and I fall into this category, there is an association between the J&J vaccine and a very rare but very serious blood clotting disorder. This is not your run-of-the-mill blood clot. Um, this is a, a blood clotting disorder that is com that combines having strokes um, with low platelets and has caused death in young women. So women in this category, I would really not recommend that they get a second J&J dose. Instead, they should be getting a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. Not necessarily because it's more effective, although there are some data to suggest that it may actually be advantageous to get a second dose that is one of the mRNA vaccines, but rather because there isn't that safety risk associated with the mRNA vaccines. So can I ask you, because I've heard a lot of anxiety about this, how did you feel after your booster shot? Was it as bad as the um, first shot around? I actually felt very minimal side effects with my first dose, and I felt m very minimal, if any, side effects with my booster dose. Now, 
I know that people are different. And so I'm not saying that everybody should have no side effects. I actually think that <laughs> right. a lot of people who got side effects feel really reassured that they got the side effects because they thought, here's my body working to produce antibodies. I just, I felt maybe a sore arm, although I went swimming right after and I felt just fine. And so I, I'm not sure that, um, that my experience necessarily is representative. But, you know, one way of thinking about it is, even if you have a side effect of fatigue and fever and headache for a day or two, which really is the maximum of when those those types of, of effects would last, that's really minor compared to what COVID can do to you. Even a mild case of COVID that does not land you in the hospital could have you laid up in bed for weeks and missing work. And for those of us who are parents of young children would be really substantial. I think so much of the booster debate has been around, well, as long as you don't end up hospitalized, why do you need to get a booster? But I think there are a lot of us who care about having symptomatic infection. I mean, it would be really hard, for example, for childcare purposes with two young kids to figure out what to do if I if I now cannot take care of them and have to be quarantined and isolated from, from them for, for two weeks. And how crucial is it for people to get a booster shot when it comes to slowing the spread of the coronavirus? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. If you look at the data from Israel, that's been well ahead of us during this pandemic, and they also have much better data collection than we do, mm-hmm. they will say, and their data do show that boosters were essential to slowing the rate of spread to prevent overwhelming hospitals. What we can see based on the data in the U.S. is that clearly immunity to symptomatic disease wanes over time. By six months, it has waned quite substantially, and a booster would be needed if our goal is to prevent symptomatic infection. In older individuals, immunity even to more severe illness could be waning after the six-month mark as well. And so I think it's not, to me, the reason to get a booster is not so much controlling COVID. If you really want to control COVID, the key is to get the unvaccinated vaccinated. It's not to give people an additional dose. But I think the real reason is to protect the individual. There are a lot of people who, again, don't want to get sick. There are also a lot of people with chronic medical conditions for whom something that's mild for someone else could very well land them in the hospital. And I think that also is a compelling reason for people to choose to get the booster, too, because they don't want to face, for example, somebody who is, you know, 35, but has chronic renal disease and emphysema and heart problems. They could end up in the hospital with a mild cold. And so preventing them from having mild symptoms might actually be important, too. Do we know how many people are actually going out and getting their booster shots? Because, you know, one thing that I've been also hearing just by talking to people is the sense that like, well, I already got my Moderna shots. I've already got my Pfizer shots. You know, I feel pretty good. Why would I need a third shot? Especially, you know, if a lot of the rest of the world doesn't have the same access to vaccines. Look, I think that it's fine to make this an option that's available to people at this time. We may get to the point that Israel has gotten to in saying that to control COVID, everybody needs to get a booster. And in order to be considered fully vaccinated, you need to have gotten an additional dose. We're not at that point. Fully vaccinated right now still means two doses of Pfizer, Moderna, or one dose of Johnson & Johnson. That definition could change. Remember that hepatitis vaccine requires three doses to be complete. Polio vaccine requires four doses to be complete. You've got the tetanus vaccine that you have to get every 10 years for it to be complete. And so we don't know in which category 
category COVID falls into, right now, I, I would say if somebody chooses to not get a booster, that is up to them. Now, I do very much appreciate your point about the global vaccine equity. And it very much is a problem that as long as we have many parts of the world that have low uptake of vaccines, that COVID will remain with us, that there could be new variants that arise in other places. And if not for humanitarian reasons that we should be helping others, there is a real self-interest reason for us to be distributing vaccines globally, too. But I also have to remind people um, who might think, well, I want to hold off on boosters until the rest of the world gets a, gets a, gets their first dose. I want to remind them that we have no mechanism in the U.S. to be exporting our doses, unused doses globally. There are um, since the beginning of the pandemic, we have wasted more from between March and August alone, we wasted more than 15 million doses of the vaccine. Unfortunately, we don't have enough people. I mean, an NBC report found that 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 was the number 15 million, more than 15 million doses, and many more are still unaccounted for. We have many, many places that just don't have people getting their initial shots of the vaccine. There are vaccines being tossed out all the time. And so I don't think that people should have this guilt of, oh, I'm taking a vaccine away from somebody in Botswana. That's not the way this works. We can and should be doing a lot more when it comes to distributing vaccines globally, helping with supply chain issues, setting up with manufacturing capabilities, also distributing the vaccines and doing outreach to overcome hesitancy in other parts of the world. That should be done too. But you're getting the booster is not the reason why somebody else somewhere else in the world is not getting their first shots. After the break, we'll talk about another pillar of keeping people safe in this next phase of the pandemic, at-home COVID tests. Testing, in a sense, was the United States' original sin. That was what we did not get right in the very beginning. That was what hindered our entire pandemic response. Have we really learned nothing here? We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. This week, the Biden administration announced that they would put some $70 million into making at-home rapid test kits more available to people and more affordable. How could something like that change the course of this pandemic? Well, I wrote a column about three weeks ago that talked exactly about this, that we need to move from thinking that we're going to eradicate COVID to figuring out how we're going to live with it. And there are three things that we can do to move COVID from what currently is, a, is an existential emergency into something that people can live with every day. Um, and that includes vaccines for younger children, oral treatment. But the third and most important piece that we're missing now is widespread accessible rapid testing. You look at the United Kingdom as an example that is providing free rapid tests to every family 
enough so that they can get tested twice a week if they want. You've got Singapore and Japan that have rapid tests available in ubiquitous vending machines that people can go to. A lot of other countries have made it the norm that before you go to a dinner party, at the door, there are rapid tests for everybody to be taking prior to coming in. In Germany, before you go to a restaurant or to the concert, you're taking a rapid test. I mean, I would love to see us getting to that point. And the thing is, other countries have figured it out. Testing, in a sense, was the United States' original sin. That was what we did not get right in the very beginning. That was what hindered our entire pandemic response. Have we really learned nothing here? The Biden administration, to your point, Lexi, did a lot. And they are doing, I'm glad that they are making an announcement about scaling up testing. But I would like to see them say um, that they will commit the same attention to testing as they have around vaccines. We need to accept at some point that we're going to hit a wall when it comes to vaccination. That there are just going to be some people, even with vaccine requirements, that we're just not going to get to. So if COVID is going to be here with us and we need to figure out how to live with it, let's try to scale up testing so that we can all be tested at least twice a week and make testing the norm before we get together with our friends, before extended family come together for the holidays, before kids go to school, before people come together for a retreat at work. Let's let's really scale up that level of rapid testing. And we're not that far from getting it because other countries have already paved the way. What can you tell us about the current state of the pandemic here in the United States? Some people are saying that this fall surge may actually be our last surge. What's your response to that? I don't know how anyone could possibly know that this is our last surge. I hope that that's the case. But if it's anything we've learned during the pandemic, it's that hope alone is not a strategy. And that we need to anticipate for the worst case scenario, because so many times during COVID-19, the worst case scenario has actually happened, including with the Delta wave. It is definitely true that we're in a better place than we were a month ago. It's definitely true that we're seeing the we've seen the peak of the Delta surge and that we're on our way down, which is fantastic and could not come soon enough. But at the same time. We also have many parts of the country that have very low vaccination rates. We have the winter coming. We have people heading indoors. And then we also have many parts of the world that are not vaccinated where we could very well have mutations arise. And who knows what the next variant could be and what havoc that could um, that could bring to us, too. And so I, I think it's just too soon for us to say, oh, we're past the worst of it. I certainly hope that that's the case, but we need to prepare as if it's not. And the other issue, too, is I don't know at what point we're going to plateau. Let's say that this is our last surge. If we plateau where we are now, about 70,000 new infections every day, that is way too high. I mean, that means that at any point you can tip over. Let's say immunity begins to wane or a new variant comes. We can get another big surge off of this very high baseline. Ideally, you want to get that to less than 10,000 new infections every day in the U.S. But again, we're not anywhere close to that. If we're not close to that point, I still think we can survive and not worry about COVID the way that we have, thinking about this as um, as instrumental in all of our decisions around work and travel and seeing our friends. But we do need things, including vaccines for younger kids, to actually be available and very critically testing. Dr. Wen, thank you so much. That was really Great. I don't know if I feel more scared or more assured after talking to you, but I certainly feel more knowledgeable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am glad to be able to join you. Thank you so much for having me. 
Dr. Lena Wen is an emergency physician and contributing columnist for The Post. She also has a newsletter you need in your inbox called The Checkup. She gives advice on questions like which booster shot to get and how to safely gather with your family for the holidays. We'll put a link in our show notes so you can subscribe. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is produced and mixed by Lena Mohammed. The kind of reporting that we do is only possible because of our subscribers. Right now, you can try The Post for just a dollar a week, which gets you unlimited access to everything we publish. Learn more at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Alexis Diao. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.